0: You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. You've probably heard the term defensive driving. It's something that you may have been taught in driver's ed, or as you hit the road for the first time as a young, inexperienced new driver. I remember having my learner's permit, which when I was growing up in Hawaii, we could get it at 15 years old, surprisingly, which then seemed like the day would never come, but now it seems so young and a bit scary to have 15-year-olds behind the wheel of heavy machines of metal and and glass traveling at quick speeds in close proximity, especially with the multitude of distractions we have while driving these days as well, especially with texting. But to get back to my original thought, I remember my dad teaching me to drive when I had my permit. Now, the roads and traffic on the sleepy island of Maui in those days, they were not exactly high-pressure traffic situations all the time, but I remember my dad telling me to be a defensive driver. I didn't quite get at first just what that meant, but he explained to me you gotta be on the lookout and you can't trust everyone else on the road. That even if you are staying in your lane, using your mirrors for safety, using your blinkers to signal to others, respecting the rules of the road, that others, well, they may not be. And you need to be on the defense lest their carelessness or mistakes impact you on the road by swerving into your lane or rear-ending you when not paying attention, or any other number of traffic mishaps that can cause damage or injury or worse. Sometimes when on the road, you realize you need to steer clear of other drivers who may not have their act together. Like when you see someone driving erratically, swerving in and out of their lane, driving at speeds that are either way too slow or far too fast. Or someone weaving who you just know has got to be drunk or using drugs behind the wheel and you fall back to give them plenty of room where you figure out a way to pass them, holding your breath as you do, hoping they don't do something erratic in that moment as you try to make a break from them, passing them in the driving lane next to them. Or the texture who is in deep communication with their BFF or, or their bay when they should have their eyes on the road and on you rather than on their screen. Or the 95-year-old who is lucky enough to still have a license and be on the road when they should have retired their driving gloves years before, now you're having to watch yourself and them while heading down the road. Defensive driving, because it's not always just about your skill and focus, but on the highways and byways, there are times when you need to buckle up and steer clear. On the last podcast, there were some people that Paul was warning them to avoid, to watch out for, and steer clear from if possible unreasonable, and wicked men, for not all have faith, and that the evil one would work through this Christ-rejecting world to try to sideswipe or rear-end the church and the believers, since not everyone was of the faith, all of us in one lane or the other, for God or against him. Paul continues with some practical advice in 2 Thessalonians 3 of some people to avoid and some tips for the road on this journey of life that they might drive defensively, since not everyone would have their best interest and safe passage in mind as they seek to walk this road called the straight and narrow. On this podcast, we take a look at 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6. Paul gives them this warning and advice in verses six and seven. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Paul has a commandment for them, he says there. The word there is parangelo. Two words smashed together. Para, which means beside and angelo, or to announce. To announce beside, as in to hand on an announcement from one to another. Sort of passing the scroll or the message on, or like passing messages in class from one desk to the next. To transmit his message from one to another. And this was no game of telephone. Paul wants to be clear, saying, Let me pass on some advice to you. No, not advice, a command and it was a command because it wasn't just paul's two cents notice in verse six we command you brethren in the name of our lord jesus christ this was something the lord would have told them and paul is just a messenger something that is important as we walk with others in life and talk and share and encourage and counsel is that we give them biblical advice what does jesus command us to do we might have our experiences or our thoughts or our opinions maybe we've learned from our mistakes and there is great wisdom in learning from those things Proverbs fifteen twenty two tells us, without counsel, counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. But the counselors we surround ourselves with should be biblical counselors. They should point us to what Jesus says, what the Bible says. That is solid advice and counsel. So Paul here says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. He talks in this section about those who walk disorderly in fact the word is used three times in just a few verses here in verse six withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly verse seven for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us for we were not disorderly among you in verse 11 for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner the word disorderly is ataktos. it means out of ranks as with soldiers out of formation. It means irregular, it means deviating from the prescribed order or rule, not falling in line, getting out of your lane, exiting on the on-ramp, not being where you're supposed to be. I remember as a kid watching airplanes called the Blue Angels. They were fighter planes that would always fly in formation, really, really cool, really neat to watch them go there. And every plane had to be right in their right spot. No one could deviate from where they were supposed to be. One of those planes being disorderly and out of line, well, it could have been devastating and not necessarily just not a nice formation, but it could have been dangerous for those in the sky as well as those on the ground. Stay in your lane. Don't deviate. Don't fall out of ranks. There is a prescribed way to walk and live, and it is according to God's design, God's will, and God's plan. And when we deviate from that, it is disorderly. Our society highly values individuality and conformity can be seen as something negative or something that should be pushed back against. We can see this in simple ways sometimes. I have a friend who hates dressing matchy-matchy with others. Like if going with a group of colleagues and everyone decides to wear the matching t-shirt on the same day or to the event, something in her can't do it or will do it cringing and kicking inside the whole time. Tell people to conform, to fall in line, and you're bound to meet with resistance. But when the order is established by God, when the lanes are painted by God, when the traffic patterns are initiated by God, when the plans and purposes of life are dictated by God, that order in life is blessed and good and solid. As Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Hearing his words and doing them, it's like a man building his house on the rock and not the sand, building according to the blueprints of God. In his wisdom, telling us what is good and right and blessed, and saving us all the time of troubleshooting and problem solving and trying to figure it all out on our own. He tells us what is good and what is the right way. Some conformity is to be avoided for sure. Paul wrote in Romans 12 verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God don't conform to this world but having our mind renewed to see that god's ways and god's plans are good and acceptable and perfect that's a conformity that brings blessing in our lives and to the world of others but this world is out of line walking disorderly out of formation of course the thessalonians knew this and had experienced this the non-believing community in thessalonica opposing them greatly bringing challenges and hardship in no way supportive of them in their new faith But it seems that those outside of the church were not the only ones disorderly that Paul warned them to watch out for. So Paul says here, We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Some who were called brothers were walking disorderly and not according to the tradition which they had received from Paul. Growing up, you were probably told that you could not or should not hang out with certain people, the certain neighbor kid or the hooligan at the bus stop or the kid at school who is always in the principal's office, your parents wanting you to steer clear of negative influences because we can be so impressionable. It's one of the reasons the Lord laid out the guidelines in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel, that they were not to intermarry with the nations around them, lest they be drawn away to worship other gods. Something they ignored on many occasions, and it always turned out disastrous. Missionary dating is not a biblical thing. Even King Solomon figured that out the hard way. There is a disorder in partnering with those in life who do not know the Lord, and not just in marriage, but in every way, whether that be friendship or even business. Sometimes as we walk on two paths in two different directions, there's a disorder in where we are headed. But we need to be also aware that not everyone called a brother is going to edify us and point us in the right direction. And Paul warned them here in Thessalonians to withdraw from those brethren who did not walk according to the tradition that they had received, those apostolic teachings. Bad doctrine or theological viewpoints or even carnality in the church, those are things that can spread easily in the body. Paul was dealing with a carnal culture in Corinth when he wrote to them, and that carnal culture was constantly encroaching on the church too. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, since they were there were pagan temples in Corinth in which the unbelievers and those in the church before coming to Jesus participated in things that dishonored their bodies. So Paul says, don't keep company with them. But then he clarifies it. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Meaning, we're not to withdraw as the people of God from having any influence in this world among sinners, or any contact, since sin has permeated this world. And Jesus came to save sinners. So who is Paul telling them not to keep company with? He goes on, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, Who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person? It's clear we need to practice defensive driving when moving through this world as believers so we don't get caught up in their sin. But later in the same epistle, 1 Corinthians, Paul's addressing false teaching, those denying the resurrection. And it's then that he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33 Do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. He wasn't talking there about sinful and carnal attitudes and choices and behaviors, but about those in the church who were teaching things that weren't good, viewpoints and theologies that were taking them away from the gospel and getting caught up in other things. Paul tells them here, and Thessalonians, avoid them, withdraw from them. He says, We command your brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from us for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Paul is concerned that they would move away from the traditions that they had been taught, the apostolic teaching. Certainly this means the gospel, that men are sinners, we can't earn God's favor, God came in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died in our place on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again, and we are saved by grace through faith. That's a tradition that they had received, the apostolic teaching. It's apparent as we read the New Testament that this often happened with Paul's ministry, that once Paul and the team left town, people either swept in with other teachings, often teaching Judaism or teaching the law and minimizing grace. Other things were constantly creeping in. And there were other teachers always on Paul's tail. I've often spent the summers in Spain and sometimes early in the morning you watch the fishing vessels head out to sea. They're kind of like big tugboats that go out. And then later in the afternoon, just before evening or right around dusk, they come back in. Out in the morning and back in the evening full of fish apparently as they come back in the afternoons you can see something very interesting flocks of birds seagulls following right after the fishing vessels flying along in a in a full-on flock right behind those tugboats full of fish swooping in for morsels or some small fish that's fallen back in the sea they are hungry and they are swarming around them i imagine that same scene following paul much like the birds swooping in to steal the seeds in Mark chapter 4. Every time he left town, a fruitful catch fishing of men, just like Jesus had said, there were someone coming in right after to swoop in and, and, and bear upon those spoils. When it comes to Paul and the Thessalonians, what was the tradition they received that Paul was concerned with? I think it also might have to do with one of the main focuses of this letter, the belief of the return of Jesus. The confusion, had Christ returned, are they in the tribulation? Well, why? Because losing the expectation of his return can have detrimental effects on one's faith. And that's one reason Paul's taking quite a bit of time to talk about it in 1 Thessalonians and then to clarify it again in 2 Thessalonians. Peter was concerned with this, that people would kind of lose sight of the return of Jesus Christ. Remember, Peter was left on a hilltop with the others in Acts chapter 1, watching as Jesus ascended up, told to wait for his return. Years later, he wrote in 2 Peter, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He called them scoffers, mockers, those who are making fun of it. One reason it's important, while later on Peter writes in verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Did you catch that? If you lose sight of the return of the Lord, you lose sight of an urgency of the gospel, and you get caught up and distracted in the things of this life and this day and this age. Maybe it was not that. Maybe just doctrine in general, but whatever it is, Paul tells them to withdraw from those people, and they would know who he's talking about. The word withdraw is stello to remove oneself, to withdraw oneself, to depart. It's sort of a leave the room, I was at a conference recently and I'm in the guidance division of our area of education. I teach career awareness and I was at this session and there was different sessions and descriptions of those sessions. And so I went to a session that seemed kind of interesting. I walked in and I sat down and they were supposed to be talking about the aerospace industry, which I thought would be interesting because I didn't know quite a bit about it. And I know a lot of students are interested, so I wanted to have some information to be able to pass on to them. But as i got down and sat down i i realized it was not going to be pertinent to me they were actually just going over curriculum resources for those who might be teaching or plan to teach it which i was neither of those so i sat there for a couple minutes kind of wondering how do i get out of here i just walked in it's a very small room and there's not a ton of people but i realized i don't think that i need to be here so what do we do in those situations well we live in kind of a polite culture you don't want to back out but I was early enough and so I, I left the session hadn't started yet and I just left. Paul said to withdraw, get out of the room. If you don't need to be there, get out to remove oneself, to withdraw oneself, to depart. We live in a culture that really promotes, well, you do, you just be tolerant of others, hear people out, but there are times to depart and back out, withdraw. The negative influence on us might be more than our positive influence on them. The Spirit, He gives us discernment of something that we don't need to hear and we know deep down in our hearts or in our minds, I don't need to listen to this, or I don't need to watch this, or I don't need to partake in this. There's a conviction of the Holy Spirit that tells us we don't need to be there. Let's flee. Well, with the world, why don't they feel that same way? Because their consciences are seared. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That's like being cauterized. You can't feel it. There's no sensitivity to watch and do and partake and not feel any regret over it with no feeling of of loss or or remorse or sensitivity. These Thessalonians, well, they were new in the faith. Their consciences had not been seared. They had newly been born again, their eyes opened to their blindness before. And perhaps they were trying to be loving and share with their neighbors there in Thessalonica. They didn't want to walk away or walk out on them. What if they got offended? What if these neighbors of theirs who saw the change in life wouldn't listen to them anymore? If I leave, if I step away, will I have to explain myself? Well, Paul didn't care. Paul was more concerned with the believers than those who were disorderly. He said to them, withdraw, get away. There are times the Holy Spirit will tell us to get up, walk out, turn it off, close our eyes, close our ears, quit it. There are times where we have to obey the Holy Spirit and withdraw to get away. Instead, though, Paul tells them to hang out with the good crowd and to remember their example and follow it, not to get it caught up in these possibly weakening situations. And Paul continues in verses 8 through 12. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Follow us, Paul says. We were not disorderly among you. And this is the second time there. He says to them that we should not, or sorry, that they were not disorderly. That's the second time that he uses that word disorderly there in this this section. We were not. We were falling in line. We were doing exactly what we're supposed to do so you can follow our pattern. He mentions there too that they shouldn't eat bread free of charge. These itinerant teachers, these guest speakers potentially that came in often after Paul, they took money from the people and they said, hey, we're here to share. You need to support us. Now, this is in contrast to Paul. Paul was a tent maker, and he supported himself, and he also got support from other churches sometimes that he had already proven himself to his, his authenticity, so that there would never be any confusion. He wanted to make sure that people understood that the gospel was a gift, and that he wasn't there for any personal gain. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter 11, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, he said, taking wages from them to minister to you, meaning that they were sending support when he was there in Corinth. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself." He didn't want to confuse the message he found ways to support himself and to make his ends meet when he was there in corinth so that when he was preaching the free gospel of jesus christ it was indeed that completely free the gospel is a gift and people already have a lot of skepticism about corruption and faith those who have become greedy and try to gain from it a lot of people are turned away from religion and from churches because they think it's all about money The Bible does speak of supporting those who minister the gospel. It says, don't muzzle the oxen while it treads on the grain. You can imagine that picture, this poor oxen going around in circles, walking over the grain, pulling that cart or that that threshing thing behind it. And it's wanting to just bend down and just have a, a few morsels from the ground. And yet that muzzle upon it, restraining it from doing so, Paul says, don't do that. If we're not going to be going, we should be supporting. We should be supporting those who who are there ministering the gospel. Now, Paul quoted Jesus, apparently, when speaking with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He says, I've shown you in every way, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This was not apparently the goal of many who were swooping in after Paul. They had, maybe some of them had made their way to Thessalonica. Listen again. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. They had had talks about this when Paul was there. Work. Adam in the garden was placed there to tend it and to keep it. We know that the thorns came afterwards, but even before the fall, he had a job to do in the garden. He had some responsibility that God had given him to do. Now, Paul says here that some walk in a disorderly manner. Now, this is the third time he uses that word. They're disorderly, they're out of step, they're out of formation. I've never been in the military, but I've seen military movies, and I can just imagine that drill sergeant with his whistle there at the front. If one of them falls out of line or does something wrong, they're all doing laps in the rain, or they're all dropping and giving 100 push-ups. Well, some there in Thessalonica, they were not pulling their weight, not working at all. He calls them busybodies. God can and often is glorified in our work, in the careers he gives us, in the jobs that he gives us. Sometimes it's a job to provide food on the table and pay the bills. Uh, for other people, they have a career, something where they're developing a sphere of influence. But with the giftings that we acknowledge that have been given to us by God, glorifying God with what we do and also influencing the others who are also in the world doing the same thing as we shine as lights in every place. Jesus called the disciples while they were doing something, while they were busy about their jobs, fishing, tax collecting. They were busy. He, they left their nets in the moment. In the Old Testament, God called shepherds while they were out shepherding the flocks. They were doing something. They had work ethic. They were out and about making ends meet. And that's the kind of people that Jesus called to be his disciples, to drop everything because they were already active. They were already doing something. They were making a difference. They had work ethic. They worked hard. I see right now, there are help wanted signs everywhere. If I didn't already have one and a half jobs, I'd be tempted to get a third job. There's work out there to be done. Now, Seasons, there might be seasons where we don't work, or circumstances where we don't need to work, or God calling you to trust Him for a season, a season which He is something else. But this is in direct contrast to someone being a busybody, someone who just doesn't want to work, or chooses not to work, or refuses to work, or is distracted from working. Idleness is never good. There's a situation in 1 Timothy in chapter 5 where there were widows. And remember, in those days, the church would have to take care of them or relatives or something because there was no social security net. They didn't have family to take care of them. And if if so, then the church would take care of them. Now, Paul writes there in 1 Timothy, if there were family to take care of them, then the family had to take care of them. They had to provide for their own. The church, of, the church of God wasn't responsible. The family was first. Now, if they were older and they didn't have family, then they could potentially take them into the number of widows of the church if they had shown that they had kept busy in the things of God and served the church before. Serving their families and serving the church, that meant they weren't just going to be dead weight. They were going to come and contribute something to the body of Christ, and the body of Christ there, that local body of Christ, would support them. But he says there in first, uh, first Timothy five, if they're younger widows, he says, and besides they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. They were getting caught up in the enemy's schemes, undermining the work of God, and they may not have even known it. Just in their idleness, in their carnality, in their fleshliness, they were actually turning aside after Satan. Not that they knew they had turned to Satanism or wicker or witchcraft or anything like that, but they were just doing the things of the flesh and not walking in the Spirit. God has called all of us to do something in this season, in this season right now, even if it is just to be still and to seek him. There's something that we are accountable for. We're supposed to do it as unto the Lord. Paul said in verse eight that they had labored and toiled and they could follow that example. It was tough work. It was sweaty work. And he was doing double duty. He worked and then in the warm part of the day when people would take time off and have their siesta, that free time in the Middle East there, he would do ministry. He would teach daily. Those people who get to do full-time ministry are blessed. But for many of us, we have to do ministry in our free time. That was such a change for me when I came off the mission field. The respect that I have for those, even back when I was serving in Slovenia full-time, who were doing their daily life and doing their nine-to-five jobs or their nine-to-six jobs or their nine-to-eight jobs and raising families and still contributing to the church. I appreciate them in a whole new light than I even did when I was on the mission field. And now I work. Now I have to work in any ministry Well, it's in my free time. Labor and toil. Paul knew what that was like. These people were not lazy. And there was an accountability for those who are serving full-time then, those who are able to be supported and do the full-time work of the ministry. There's an accountability with that. Paul tells them, Now those who are such, who are busybodies, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. The second time we see in these verses that we're looking at in this podcast, we see him command. The first time was in verse 6. Paul's not offering a suggestion or putting in his two cents. He commands them here that they should work in quietness. Some people can hymn and haw that they have to work, complaining about work. They hate their jobs. Be thankful for God's provision through whatever work he provides. Paul says here that they should eat their own bread, their own bread. For us, well, when it comes to bread, we can just go down to the Dollar General around the corner. We can pick up a loaf of bread. But imagine this. If they were to eat their own bread, what does that mean? They had to first plow the field. Then they had to plant the field. And then they had to tend the field. Then they had to water the field. Then they had to wait months for it. And then they had to harvest that grain. And then they had to grind it. And then they had to mix it. And then they had to bake it. That's what it means to eat your own bread. Plan. Be faithful. Be faithful be fruitful work throughout the season beginning the season middle of the season end of the season go get it at the right time harvest work paul's saying you're gonna work hard eat your own bread and be involved be engaged with it there are no handouts he was not expecting others to cover for them there was no social systems or others he said eat your own bread now that's something that's satisfying when you eat your own bread if you've ever made something from scratch at home especially something like bread there's something so satisfying about hey I made this from scratch i didn't just buy this even if it's in a bread maker there's some pride there but if you really make it from scratch it's pretty amazing nothing to be prideful out of but something that is satisfying another thing here if we're supposed to eat our own bread make sure we're not enabling people some parents unfortunately need to cut off their kids or give their kids some chores to do i know someone who's a soon-to-be college graduate and they've been having their rent paid for and everything paid for and they were really surprised to find out that after graduation it's not going to be paid for anymore. Maybe they should have been saving up some of the money they were making in their part-time job. I think it's important to teach kids about personal finance. I got to teach it for a number of years at my previous school that I worked at, and there was always parents who would tell me at parent-teacher conferences, man, I wish I had had learned that. Thank you, my kids having real-life conversations. We need to learn to eat our own bread. Paul mentioned that they led by example verse 9 the example is that they were servant leaders that they showed they didn't just tell kids learn i remember my parents teaching us to work really really hard summer came and when a lot of kids had nothing to do but watch tv all summer we had lists greeting us every morning i've mentioned in a previous podcast where we had chores that we had to do before we could do anything that was remotely fun it seemed like but they would pay us as well as we would do some of these chores and as we gained more responsibility. Even by the end, before we left high school, they were paying us to do some of the things that they had with their, with their rentals or with their businesses. We earned a good money. It was much better than the first job I had at a car wash where I was working for someone else for probably five or $6 an hour. My parents paid much better. Well, what's the root of this? What is it? These people here in Thessalonica, they were not working. What was it tied to? Maybe it was tied to the false teaching that Jesus had already come back. You know, we are supposed to keep busy until he returns. We're to keep working, to be busy about our father's business when he comes back. God has given us a stewardship to do until he comes back. Whatever it is, each of us a little bit different. We're to work until he comes back. Jesus said in John 9 verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. What work has God called you to do? Time, when There's a time coming when you will punch out. Either he's going to call you on to something else, or you will die, or he will come back. But it's day now. It's time to work. There's an accountability with that. And stay away from those who will keep you from doing so, or who will distract you from doing it, as unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. Paul was pleased to see that the Thessalonians were continuing on with the work that Jesus had for them, verses 13 through 15. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. First, you, you don't grow weary in doing good. He writes something similar in Galatians 6, verse 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. There are some good things that you're doing right now that you're growing weary of. Don't grow weary. Keep doing the good things that the Lord has appointed you to do, even if others are not. Sometimes you'll see a road crew or a construction team addressing some problem, a bunch standing around and one person working. I saw this the other day. There was a broken water main around the corner, and as I was driving away, there was water literally flowing down the road, just a river. And they addressed it, and... I came back a little bit later, and one guy was working. And it seemed like there were five supervisors. Now, I'm not judging because there was limited equipment. It was a small hole. It just was one part of the pipe. But it was a pretty funny picture to see that typical thing of one guy working and a lot of people standing around. Now, any of these guys would have done a much better job than I could ever would do. So I'm not going to judge them. But the picture's clear. Don't grow weary in doing good. You be the guy or the gal working while all the others are standing by. I don't. You be the one that people can look to as the example and say, that's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Whatever God has entrusted to you, it's his grace that will enable you to do it. So keep doing it. Don't grow weary in that. Romans 12 verse 3 says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Be sober about what God has given you, what he's dealt to you, the measure of faith he's given you, the gifts he's given to you, what cards has he dealt to you? The measure of faith that he's given you to do it through the grace given to us. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul, laboring more abundantly, as he looked around, he was doing more, he was being called to more, he was accountable for more, but he said it wasn't him, it was the grace of God which was with me. Don't get distracted, Paul says. He writes there, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. When they see you faithfully serving God with all that you have, fulfilling your purpose and using the gifts God has given you, they might be ashamed that they are wasting what God has given you and jump in the hole and start digging too. I remember being in geometry class in my freshman or sophomore year of high school. I think it was my freshman year of high school. And sometimes they would talk if something was going to be judged on a curve. He was going to grade on a curve. Everyone would try and convince one another to do the worst that they could on the exam but something didn't sit right with that. Why would I do the worst that I can when I'm supposed to be doing the best? Paul kind of says the same thing here. Don't keep company with them that they may be ashamed. It's not necessarily that we don't want them to, we want to put them on the side, but we want them to see and be spurred on by a godly jealousy. He says, don't count him as an enemy, admonish him as a brother and let the Holy Spirit do his refining and convicting work in them as he likely has done in you. It is now day, it is time to labor, and who knows when the dark will come and none of us can work. We don't need to strive, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And no matter how tough or challenging the things God has given you now, whether that be to be a spouse or a parent or an employee or a bivocational servant of Jesus, or to do ministry in your full for your free time or in the full time, or to work hard and barely get bread on the table, Jesus will give you his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to to fulfill any and all the callings that he has given you for this life. Don't grow weary in doing good. And don't let the laziness or passivity or reluctance or neglect of others keep you from pressing on. 1 Corinthians 9 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Run to obtain that prize. So, Lord, keep us from those who will derail us or call us to fall out of step. Make us sober about the influences that we place around us, and Lord, surround us with encouragers who can sharpen and refine and strengthen us. Lord Jesus, we just ask that you would give us new strength and vision for the work that you've called us to right now in this very season. And Lord, thank you that you have faithfully provided in each season. And we ask for you to supply all of our needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Thank you above all. Lord for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the provision that you've made for our eternal salvation we praise you that the work of the cross is finished and that a Sabbath awaits us Lord an eternal Sabbath but may we be faithful to work now while it is day and all the more as we see the day approaching it's in Jesus' name that we pray Amen We'll tune into the next podcast as we finish not only the book of 2 Thessalonians but we finish season 2 of the Verbatim Word podcast